Welcome to the Ancestral Kitchen podcast with Alison, a European town dweller in central Italy, and Andrea, living on a newly created family farm in northwest Washington State, USA. Pull up a chair at the table and join us as we talk about eating, cooking, and living with ancient ancestral food wisdom in a modern world kitchen. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm so excited to be recording this podcast with you, Allison. So yeah, we are in <laughs> We're in two different countries. As you heard in the intro, Allison is in Italy and I'm in the United States. We're in two different time zones. It's morning for her and it's almost the middle of the night for me. So we have a recording set up. And Allison's amazing husband is helping us to smooth out any issues we may have. But if you hear anything a little bit odd in our recordings, you can just chalk it up to trying to send our voices up to the satellites and back at the same time. (laughs) So give us a little bit of grace as we figure out our contraptions here. So Allison, I want to start out by asking you, since it's a morning time for you, And since I always want to know, what did you have for breakfast this morning? Well, I had mostly leftovers. Leftovers are a big thing (laughs) in our house. So there was some some sweet potato, which I had last night left over, fried in coconut oil. And also mixed in with a bit of millet that was left over. And then I like to have nuts and seeds in the morning often. So I had some crispy walnuts, almonds and hazelnuts, which are all Italian. We're lucky with that, which I soaked and dehydrated. So they were really crispy. Some ground in seed, a spoonful of miso, which I love. And then topped it all with some local olive oil. That was my breakfast. Well, I missed the invite. (laughs) (laughs) and how about you your your last meal was dinner so tell me what you had for dinner you're going to be so impressed oh yeah (laughs) you're not (laughs) i had beans and pork (laughs) so the kids had a piano recital tonight and it was on a zoom call and so it just turned into one of those evenings where you're sort of i don't know going a little bit crazy and so I took a bunch of beans and some of our pork from the pig that we butchered, not our own pig, but the one we got from our friends. And I just cooked them together and that was what we ate. <laughs> oh, sounds nice. It sounds like a proper winter dinner, you know, that's filling and satisfying. It actually did feel, I, I, I was surprised at how appropriate it felt. I, I had got out uh, some potatoes to put in with it and then I just never got them put in. And then um, we, we have Ozette potatoes out here. Maca, oh, I'm not sure if that's how it's pronounced. They came up, I think the Spanish brought them back in the early days of their sort of, uh, I guess, proselytizing you know, up and down the California coast. And then they made their way up to the Pacific Northwest and were cultivated by Native Americans here for quite a long time. 
And they completely fell out of style because they're smallish and they have lots of crevices on them. So they Mm. can be a chore to wash, but they, so they kind of were disappearing and then food, I don't know what they would really be called food historian, preservation enthusiasts. (laughs) One of the things they did to try and restore the Ozette potato population back here was they sent a bunch of samples out to a bunch of farms and had them start growing them so now you can find it at all sorts of farmers markets and things around here so we bought a lot from a couple small farms around us both for seed for ourselves which we just have layered in sawdust and boxes in the garage and then boxes as well for us just to eat all winter so they're really good really creamy really flavorful and I was hoping to throw some of those in it but I didn't but there's enough that I can add some in it tomorrow because hey leftovers are (laughs) a big thing here too nice so we decided I can't can't compete (laughs) we decided to have this um, episode be our meet Andrea episode uh, to let you hear a bit of about us about myself and about Andrea and to learn why she lives like she does to share her life and to share her kitchen and her journey and so I've got some questions lined up for Andrea and I'm hoping we'll have a lively and interesting discussion for you and also let you get to know her a bit more through it. So the first one I'm going to start with is to do with uh, location. We know that, that you're in the US, Andrea, but tell us where you live. All right, so we are in the Pacific Northwest, and more specifically, the upper northwest corner of Washington State. So Western Washington, which is the wet side, we live um, kind of in a convergent zone. The eastern side of Washington is actually more of a desert. And then the western side is infamously very wet and cloudy, uh, cloudy and overcast a lot of the time. So you can see the trees over here grow huge, kind of like the jungle. They grow huge and fast, whereas on the other side of the state, they take longer to grow. It's really interesting, just some of the differences. So yeah, my husband and I both grew up near here. Both our parents still live in our childhood homes about an hour away and we absolutely love it so it's a small 20 acre mm, I would call it a homestead right now mm-hmm. so meaning as opposed to like a commercial farm we we do raise and produce some things primarily just for ourselves right now our income doesn't come from the farm at this point just comes from the work that my husband and I do with our jobs but we we moved out here let's see seven-ish months ago seven eight months ago and yeah Gary where were you before that for so we were in town about an hour south of here towards Seattle and it was 
fine. It was a lovely house. Uh, actually, we love the house and we we're really happy to sell it to friends because it's such a, it's just such a delightful little house. But we had the kids and we just wanted lots of outside room, both my husband and I grew up, our parents had property and trees and, you know, swamps and all the things that you love about the Pacific Northwest. And we wished that we could provide the same thing for our kids. So tell us about your kids looking. briefly, because we haven't we haven't talked about uh, your eight, oh, the ages of yeah. your kids and how many you have. Oh, that's a good one. We have three kids. The oldest is eight. Uh, his name is Jacob. And then Camille is five and Adelaide is three. A houseful. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, I want more, but <laughs> we take what we get. <laughs> so tell us what's important to you around food and why that is the case. Well, that I guess, and I, I know with both of us just from watching you that we definitely agree on pretty much everything about food at least I haven't found anything we disagree on yet but the I, I love history and I love the history of food and I'm fascinated by marketing and so looking at how the food culture here in the United States has changed very, very rapidly over a fairly short period of time. Um, just totally fascinates me and blows my mind. And it sort of astonishes me how quickly we changed everything we knew about food and moved to a very industrialized model of food. And mm. it's almost in order to eat the way somebody ate even 50 years ago, much less 100 years ago, is increasingly difficult. You know, if you want to find certain foods that were raised without pesticides or herbicides, sometimes you can't even find it where you live. You know, the only thing available is chemical agriculture in some cities. Or finding food that came from a farm near you is challenging sometimes which is weird because you know even a short time ago that was the only food you could find so mm. wanting to eat food that was raised without the aid of you know synthetic and chemical agriculture and then also wanting to eat local food we just realized that if we I don't know if we want to eat like that we're gonna to have to change the way we're living basically so, so why why do you want to eat like that? Why is it important to you to eat food as it was maybe a hundred years ago without the industrial processes? And why is it important to you to find food that's local? It it seems like it hasn't been a huge favor to the health of our society, the way food has changed. And so my hope and aim is I suppose you could say <laughs> to live longer <laughs> and for mm. my kids to have the opportunity to be healthier and for my husband and I to have the opportunity to be healthier we feel better just in general physically when we are able to eat better 
and I don't know it's it's it almost seems dangerous to me the way a lot of things have gone the uh, amount of interference that you see in food the um, painful and inhumane way animals are treated and I think the inhumane way plants and the soil are treated I, I I don't know those things are important to me and the only way to step outside of that flow is to just real really start taking ownership and it it is not always easy and sometimes I just want to check out and do things the easy way but um, if ever we so, over the kind of holiday weekend we got some just kind of I guess what you would call regular food and the kids said oh my stomach hurts and my stomach hurt you know and everybody was just tired wow. and grumpy and the kids were literally jumping and bouncing and I just thought well if you ever want to know what food does to you eat really well for a while and then stop even for yeah, one I, meal I totally agree with shock. you and and I when you think, I, I don't know, I just, I, I think I just used to live like that all the time and I just wasn't aware of it. I never related it to the food because I, it, if the food was constantly in my system, I had no way of knowing that that was the food that caused the issue because I never really stood up from a meal and then, you know, passed out from the meal or something. I just constantly kind of felt that way. Yeah, I agree with you totally that if you, if you continue eating bad food in quotes all the time you don't know what it's doing to you it's when you change and stop that you feel the right. effects and, and at, often at the beginning they're very bad effects because you're going through detox um, but yes it's such a <laughs> eye-opening experience to to be eating well or better and then go back right. like you explained and and eat food right. which is standard and realize wow I've been do I was doing this to myself all the time so, and yeah. I never blamed the food. I do remember yeah. saying to my husband the first time we we really went through just kind of aggressively eating well. And I said to him, I never knew I felt so bad until I felt this good. So if you had asked mm -hmm. me, do you feel bad? I would have said no. But I didn't know really what it felt like to feel different, I suppose I should say. Yeah. So it sounds like your husband's 100% behind um, what you're doing and it, of the same values as you and, and that your children have a, an understanding in their body because they've experienced it in through through both of you. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, he was pushing me long before I was really thinking about it. And he was always finding you know phenomenal things to eat and I just thought oh, okay whatever sure fine let's go bread <laughs> what's wrong with chicken patties <laughs> mm. but you know it it was a little mm. change and and if people ask me all the time when did you start or how did you get started and I always say I literally remember exactly the moment it was organic tomatoes <laughs> mm -hmm. because I thought why would you we pay more for organic tomatoes what's behind that and I read a book 
I wish I could remember the title of the book, but I read a book about the way tomatoes are grown and it just shocked me. And from there on, it was a spiral. And I remember every time I, I picked a new thing to learn about, I would think to myself, are you sure you want to go down this road? Because once you know it, you can't unknow it. You can't yeah. go back to that blissful ignorance. And then it got to the point where... No, I even remember when I was going to start researching shampoo ingredients and I thought, do I really want to go down this path? Because I I really don't want to have to think about it. And then I actually didn't research it for a while because I was kind of afraid. But then I, I came to the point where I realized I wasn't even using my shampoo because I thought, I don't even, I haven't even looked, but I already know it's going to be something bad. <laughs> so, you know, even without knowing specifically what it was, I just felt, I don't know what, what I'm going to find when I flip that bottle over. And of course, anybody mm -hmm. who's gone down the detoxing their life path knows it's never, <laughs> it's never what you want whenever you find what's on that label and what's behind it. And I think what you said is so true. Once you know something, it's so hard to do, to just carry on with it. And I, and that's why it's so difficult, I think, for society as a whole to, to move because we don't want to think about it because it brings up pain and it brings up, you know, responsibility and it brings up possibly having to spend more money and change the way we are. Um, and taking that responsibility is is a hard step. It brings so much with it. But it's a difficult step to take. And so I really resonate with you when you say, you know, do I really want to go right. there? <laughs> it's true. Yep. You've said eating well uh, several times, you know, we, we changed to eating well. We want to eat well. I wondered if you could define to me what eating well oh, means boy, to you. Boy, you're just trying to get people to send me hate mail, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to get death threats. <laughs> Well, <laughs> I think it can vary from person to person. So what I will say here applies to me and my family, and I'm not making sweeping statements about the world or about, you know, every individual person out there. So please, please don't uh, send me hate mail. <laughs> For us, what we have found works best, and I definitely think there is a lot of merit to the philosophy that um, your genetic history plays into what is best for your body. But for us, we found that following the principles laid out by the Weston A. Price Foundation have been really helpful. We don't necessarily always stick to them. For instance, yesterday me and the girls made chocolate chip cookies and we used einkorn flour and coconut sugar you know so the me of yesteryear would say oh wow it's the healthiest cookie in the world and the chocolate chips are made with you know just dark chocolate and stevia so they're not you know real ghastly but we didn't soak or ferment the grains in advance which would be the true Weston A. Price method so of course mm -hmm. in my brain I think you know, the nutrients are still locked up, but sometimes, you know, you make compromises. <laughs> Maybe 
other people don't but I do <laughs> I think it's it's not what you do it's not what you do for that one-off right. it's what you do right and, and we don't for breakfast lunch sadly we do not live on cookies <laughs> so you know it was kind of it was like Christmas time and I wanted to make someone put some in the freezer so we had them you know for Santa and everything but um so the Weston A. Price Foundation and if anybody's not familiar with them you can just look it up online. They're everywhere. Weston A. Price, of course, was a dentist who noticed certain people, certain areas of the world that he went that had perfect teeth, and it just drove him deeper in learning about their traditional foodways. And so thus kind of came the name of this podcast, which we stole from your lovely Instagram, Allison. <laughs> But really sums it up, the Ancestral Kitchen, Weston A. Price Foundation espouses really ancestral eating. So looking at how people ate many, many, many years ago and saying, well, if it's been keeping people alive for this long, there's probably some uh, reasons why. And it's been just really fascinating because some of the things that people did in the old days, what they call ancestral wisdom or ancient wisdom, Nobody back then had a microscope or a lab to really tell you why. They just knew, you know, grandmother always did it this way. And why did grandmother do it that way? They, because her grandma did it that way. But it's just fascinating to see the more science that comes out, the more it backs the food preparation methods. So for instance, as we referred to soaking or fermenting, grains and then actually makes them more digestible for humans because we poor one-stomached humans can't ferment our grains and break them down in our stomach the way like a cow or another ruminant could so um we're left to either just pass our food through barely digested and nutrients <laughs> intact on the way out the back door or we can ferment them before we eat them and get a lot of that digestive action happening before we even eat the food and get more benefits so there's lots of fun ways that science now backs up these old traditional methods and every once in a while you know sally fallon or one of our heroes in the movement will say we don't have the science for this but we kind of know that when we do it's going to back up because this has been done for thousands of years and sure enough you know it always comes out so so for us specifically eating the the closer we eat to where we are the better it is for us so eating things raised on local farms or um I suppose more and more as we can from what we raise ourselves, although that's not much yet, but then mm. eating things that are from around here and then um, cooperating with other farmers around us, you know, for milk or things like that, that we don't have for ourselves yet. We just, we feel better and we do better. And then uh, if I walk into a grocery store, I mean, I went into a grocery store after not going to a grocery store for months and I just thought wow this is where I got all my food for the longest time it just was kind of a weird feeling and everything just looked like junk <laughs> it's really sad to say 
but everything looked like junk all around me. And I have, I do go to the grocery store now, now that we've moved up here. I've gone a bunch of times and there's always good things that I can get here and there. But the more we can get during the summer, I mean, we were out picking and we were buying bulk from farms and we were freezing and canning and fermenting and drying everything. Um, so the more we can eat of that, the the better we feel. And then prepare it as close as we can the mm. Western A price way. Great. That explains. Thank you. I was nodding. You, you can't <laughs> see me, but I was nodding so much when you were talking about the kind of ancestral wisdom that just was held in the individuals and the community without knowing why. That's a, an endless source of, of fascination right. for me. I, I agree. Tell us a bit about your your kitchen setup and also kind of expanding on that because you're starting to raise animals your kitchen setup and the, the setup that you have with the animals that you're raising there well the kitchen is fun <laughs> when we moved here the the other thing people ask me all the time is do you miss your old kitchen <laughs> to which i point outside to where you can see nothing around us but forest and hills and forest and hills and i say i don't miss anything <laughs> But our other kitchen was huge and lovely and it actually helped a lot being in the city where I felt like I had to really push myself to try to feel like I was not living in the city, if that makes any sense. I, I know I know that makes sense to you because you live um Yeah. You live in a town also. Um, but you just do everything in your kitchen. So the kitchen before was huge and had electricity <laughs> so this kitchen does have electricity but uh, we're off the grid so our power is solar and our backup is a tiny <laughs> generator so I can't run things like the oven without thinking about it checking on the power to see how much we have maybe turning on the generator um, checking to see what else is running because you can't run too many you know, big things at a time. I can't just turn on even my dehydrator. So of course, what I love about that is it always makes you ask, well, why, <laughs> why did grandma dry everything in the summer? <laughs> because guess what? She wasn't yeah, plugging yeah. anything in. I mean, it really just throws you back it and you start to realize, I, I mean, even in a small way, we don't even have a completely an unelectric kitchen I don't even know what the word is we don't even have a kitchen without electricity and yet you already start to feel you know it's, it starts to get dark and you think well you know do we want to run lights when there's the power is low or do we just go to bed <laughs> that's why people went to bed early because yeah. they didn't want to burn you know because you think oh I only have so many candles I only have so much beeswax to make more and then you go, all right, that's why they went to bed, because they weren't going to burn 93 candles at night. That's why rich people had 93 candles burning at night, because they could afford it. So um, so the kitchen's small. It's a galley-style kitchen. And, and I say it's small almost jokingly, because when Gary asked me, well, you know, are you going to like this kitchen? It's pretty small. And I said, well you know, every person throughout history has pretty much had a smaller kitchen and, and they had to do everything. So I think I can deal with it. And 
I always say that it doesn't even matter how big your kitchen is. I've had the smallest kitchens, tiny little postage stamp kitchens, but but I organize it in the way that I know exactly where everything is and I can move very quickly in it. And I do more in my teeny tiny kitchens than I see people do in, you know, huge, huge kitchens that they just, they don't know how to use, utilize. So it's a little galley kitchen. And then most of our pantry storage is in the garage and we'll probably the the shelves are very full right now so I think I'm going to start moving all the empty jars downstairs to underneath the house there's just some unfinished storage area that's dry where I can put all the jars boxes of jars and then we have two freezers chest freezers in the garage and a fridge freezer that the sellers left in the house and we give us give us an idea of how many um cans you have you know what's the quantity of of preserved and fermented and canned food that you have oh in storage well <laughs> if i had to guess the number of jars i don't know maybe 1500 jars or so um i wow. i have a lot of old jars as well i really treasure old jars i i love the history I told you I love the history of food so when I look at old jars then it tells you about how food was stored and why it was stored and sealed that way and uh, you know an interesting thing I always tell people is you know how in the old days grandma would can her tomatoes without a pressure canner and then you know starting around the 70s and around there people started getting botulism from eating tomatoes that were canned without a pressure canner so you think oh you know why why wasn't everybody dying of botulism before? And it's, again, it comes down to that food history. And you learn that in the 70s, seed masters were starting to change tomato seeds. They were hybridizing tomatoes that were larger and juicier and they grew faster and they could be grown, you know, uh, more commercially and they would last on the shelf longer. So these are the kind of seeds and the kind of plants that were coming about. And those tomatoes are lower in acidity than the tomatoes that were the smaller, yeah. more soft tomatoes that grew outside in the sunshine in mineral rich soil with rainwater falling on them. So then tomatoes being canned were more base and they couldn't fight off the seabot, the Clostridium botulinum that causes botulism. And so then, oh, now you got a can and a pressure canner. And I just think things like that are so fascinating. And of course, that's also why I didn't mention heirloom plants, but like the Ozette potatoes are what would be considered an heirloom plant. And those old seeds also tend to be more nutritious um, vegetables and fruits and things like that. So yeah, so lots of canned things in the garage. <laughs> I think the um, the tomato example you've just given is probably a prescient of what we're going to have as a theme as the podcast goes on. The idea of kind of the industrial right. revolution right. in food and the fact that that was for profit, right. you know, that they're hybridized for Absolutely. a reason to, to make them quicker and easier and make more profit. Whereas in the past, they're grown you know, locally yeah. in the home, not for profit. They're grown for nutrition. They're mm -hmm. grown for life. Mm -hmm. They're grown for making making someone as strong and as healthy right. as possible. And the divergence of those two things and the way that that we seem to be pointing as as a society at the moment is 
a big contributor to the to the health and the psychological health as well as bodily health of of the world and um i think there are so many examples of it in the the work that that you're doing in the home and the research and the the farmers that are, are bringing back and passionate I about a more grounded way of life and it's it's a for me it's an endless topic of discussion yeah really. I, I think i think it is and and and, and i us, agree with you tell us about the oh, animals the creatures <laughs> tell us about the animals you're growing you're, you're raising yeah you didn't so tell an us about heirloom that. animals called heritage <laughs> and that's an older breed i forget exactly how long a breed has to have been around in order to be considered heritage but uh again you will encounter these modern breeds of animal that I'll use an example of a cow there you know you you see the old bucolic pictures of cows on grass and grandma says oh yes our cows ate grass and you know father would give them some grain in the winter but of course who has the money to feed a cow grain all summer so you know you know Billy would go take the cow to a new pasture and <laughs> well modern cows many of these breeds actually can't even survive on just foraging um these modern breeds are made to live mm. on grains or even worse they they are fed even worse than that in some of the factories you know where cows are getting old rotting bakery goods and things like that just junk literally junk calories and of course their health suffers for it but uh heritage breeds do better you know on grass and things like that and and you have these these modern breeds of both cattle and and birds poultry that can't even survive beyond a certain age because they're just made to bloat up really quickly like like a cornish not a cornish what is the the Cornish cross? I I'm totally drawing a blank on the name of this bird now, but the chicken that she her her poor breast tissue gets so huge that you know she can't even walk after a couple of weeks, and they're fully mature at mm. eight weeks. I mean, our chickens outside, you know, they're not even laying eggs yet. <laughs> they're they're way past eight weeks, but they're all heritage breeds, and our turkeys. You know that I love turkeys, are a heritage breed also. Um, red bourbon, and those. I think the one that we butchered for Thanksgiving was fourteen pounds. I think he was about fourteen pounds, and that's nothing by industrial standards. And so, of course, you have you know these turkeys that just grow gigantic and huge in a very short amount of time where our bourbons grow slowly you know at the very earliest you could butcher a bourbon is maybe nine months it's a long time to be feeding a bird commercially for only 14 pounds and of course we're feeding them <laughs> organic food from a local farm and letting them forage grass and things like that and bugs you but they love it <laughs> but you know it all comes back to same thing as the um tomatoes you know these birds have been ranked the best tasting turkey in the world and uh, but but what you're looking for in the big freezer section at the box big box store is not the best tasting turkey it's the cheapest turkey 
and the biggest mm. turkey and <laughs> the whitest meat and the least mm. bones and all these things and um so so we we have turkeys and chickens that's the only critters we have right now other than our farm employees of uh dogs and cats <laughs> but um the the chickens are heritage breeds and the turkeys are heritage breeds and you know that that also means w with your chickens with your egg layers you don't have you know maybe they don't lay as much as some of these birds that are bred for just pumping out you know an egg a day till they just keel over cuz their body can't sustain that pace for very long so yeah, you definitely see a huge difference between heritage um, breeds. And and I'm probably an idealist because I'm new <laughs> to farming. But also I follow idealists who have been doing it for years, like Joel Salatin. And they they give me hope that <laughs> that I can be a crazy idealist for a long time. So taking that, that idea of hope... Um, and hearing you talk with such enthusiasm about heritage and, and going back to old methods and techniques, I wonder what your hope is for the future of food production and the future of eating. I hope food has a future. <laughs> How dismal does that sound? <laughs> I, I, hmm. I have great hope, actually. I think that people are waking up on a large scale and you can see it by the way food manufacturers are pivoting and relabeling packages with things like natural and no antibiotics and trying to catch our attention. And those aren't always true. They're often misleading. Natural means nothing. Organic is a useless label at this point. You know, the organic label every year, um, commercial farmers lobby to add more chemicals to that list that's allowed on the organic label so you can't even rely on that and you and I both know you have to go meet your farmers in every way you can but I think people are definitely waking up to some the fact that they've been um, being duped for a long time or maybe sold something that they that they didn't want and um, I think we see a huge uh, impact in that sadly here in the united states in the in the sense that people are turning and spending their dollars um in small farms and so that translates into food lobbyists manu or food manufacturers lobbying for tighter controls on small farms and more restriction on small farms and not allowing things you know requiring things of food production that are literally impossible for anything less than a huge industrial plant to produce like quantities of paperwork and things like that that just no small farm can possibly do because I I think we're hitting them in the wallet and they're actually feeling the impact of all these mm -hmm. grassroots efforts of pushing people towards smaller farms and shopping local and things like that and there is no 
no one person who profits when people turn around and shop local and shop from small farms. No one person profits from that. It just gets dispersed throughout a ton of tiny little farms. And I think that's a good thing and that's fine. Um, but then that also means it's a little bit harder for the small farms because we don't have these huge lobbyists with, you know, the ear of politicians and everything like that. Um, on our side. So it, it really is helpful when people are aware and active because you'll see farms get shut down for things and people will think, oh, well, maybe the farm just didn't do a good job. But um, what we need to know is that staying aware, I don't know, it's kind of hard because you you can't expect your average consumer, I, I can't even expect myself to be on top of all the bills and things like that, that people are always trying to push through to slow down small farms. But, but just having people in touch with their farmers is really helpful because the only way I ever learned about any of this was because I was shopping at small farms. And I would just sit out there in the sunshine, you know, at the little farm stand and listen to farmers talk. And, and that's where I started to become aware of all these these ways that I guess you could say politics affect our food and um, there's just no quick and easy shortcut to making sure that everybody's educated and informed but I have immense hope because I see enormous numbers of people making enormous efforts to be informed so following farmers on podcasts or following, you know, joining CSAs and buying from small farms. I just, I absolutely love it. And especially this year, we've seen farms just selling out. I mean, farms where I used to go and, um, like the farm where we bought all our tomato starts. Um, every time I went back all spring, they had so many tomato starts, not last year, but the year before, just sort of withering, you know, they had sold a ton of them, but then there was just a bunch more withering. And I, I felt so bad for every tomato. Every time I went back, I was buying more because I was like, I need to give them a home. I feel so bad. They're just here. Nobody loves them. I need to adopt them. So I kept buying. I think we had like 50 tomato plants by the time I was done, but I, I felt so sorry for them. But <laughs> but this year I went pretty early in the season and I said, wow, where's the tomato starts? And she goes, they are all gone. Every single one is sold. And of course wow. I was sad for me, but I was just so excited that how awakened people were to how fragile this enormous food transport system is, how it doesn't take much more than two or three days to just decimate the grocery store shelves and to completely knock the foundations out of food production and how suddenly they realized that there was small farms in their neighborhood they could take advantage of and they went and they spent their dollars there and I just think that's so exciting so I have hope and is that hope. is that why you want to share what you're sharing and what what you're what you share on Instagram and through the work that you do because you want to increase that wave and and make it as big as it can I think be so yeah and I, I think also it's, it's, um, it's, it's hard to find the information. So I feel like the more people who are out there putting the information out there, the more helpful it is because it's not always easy, you know, to find what we're trying to find. Yeah. Yeah. 
So my last question, I just, I'm aware of the time. I've got one more question, which you were just about to talk about, I think, um, which is what excites you the most about all of everything you're doing from the fermenting to your kitchen, to your family, to the animals that you're raising, to the heritage grains, to the farmers, the relationships, what excites you the most? In that? Oh man, you know, I had an answer written down because you, you briefed me and mentioned that you would ask that question as I thought about it. <laughs> But I don't know if the answer I wrote down is actually the right one. I think it's a symptom of the right answer. I think I was going to say turkeys. <laughs> I, I, I get such a thrill. I don't know why. I get such a thrill when I walk out and see the turkeys. But I think that's that's what what really excites me the most when, when you really just, just boil it down. Why, why does the turkeys excite me? And... I love I will I, I, I don't I will try not to sound like um hokey when I say this, but I love feeling connected. And when I walk outside and I see my turkeys <laughs> I feel connected to the history of the turkeys and my ancestors raising turkeys and the people who are raising the grains for my turkeys and my husband who's building, you know, sheds and fences and turkey corrals and everything. And, um, the kids, my own kids that I'm feeding as I, as I pull the guts out of a turkey one day and then roast it in the oven another day and cut it off a piece and put it on my kid's plate and I just think all oh, that good nutrition is going into their body and I feel connected to people out here on the land and um, I just love that feeling of being connected and when you go to the grocery store uh, you can put your airpods in or whatever the kids do these days and you can walk it over to the shelf and take something off the shelf and you never knew who you, you never saw the sun where that thing grew you never saw the kitchen where that went into the container you never saw the man who put the label on it you never saw even the person who unloaded the box and put it on the shelf and then you walk over to the self-check and you you know don't even have to type in the name of the thing just beep it on the counter and then don't even have to get any money out. Just get your card out and then you can walk out, get back into your car, close the door, go back home. And you never saw a single person. And mm. when we eat close to the land, everything is connection. I mean, I go out there and I talk to my turkeys. I know I'm, I know that they're going to end up in in my oven or on my stew pot one day and I love them and I st I go out and I, I tell them how beautiful they are and I throw them apples which they chase around like a basketball and they just I know they're living just the most wonderful life up until their last moment when they just peacefully will go and you know you know in my hands with my kids next to me and my kids hands with me and um then we will all pluck them together and then 
we'll process them together and I don't know this it's just so connected when you eat this way and it, it, it feels completely different and so I think then when you end up with your final product of food it's not just the cheapest or the fastest I think there can be a time and a place for that but it's not the cheapest and the fastest thing it's just the best thing I, I guess it all comes down to just connection for me yeah, that's really very beautiful what you were saying when you were describing going out and seeing the turkeys. I got goose pimples because, you know, life is about connection. Connection is what makes us human. Okay. And to we, I think we need that feeling. Our cells need it. Our, our, every bit of our body Absolutely. needs it. And so I can, I can understand how the turkey can symbolise it's a kind of a world of all the different parts of that connection, that circle that come right. together and make a whole. And it's um, it's very beautiful to listen to you describe it. Thank you. Well, thank you for asking all those awesome questions. I only hope I can live up to it when I ask you. <laughs> Is there anything else that you want that you want to 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 say or share that that hasn't come up so far? I feel like we covered a lot, and and I know more will come up you know, over the span of our discussions. But I think this, this is a, I'm, I'm Andrea. I live on the side of a hill. <laughs> I have a husband and three kids and turkeys. <laughs> and I love to talk about food with you. <laughs> nice. Well, thank you so much for um, beginning this adventure with me together we're stepping forward and doing something exciting and new and something that um will hopefully bring lots of discussions and ideas so. forward um, and it was a privilege to hear a bit more about your life and your family and what makes you tick so thank, thank you very you, much <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to continue the conversation. Come find us on Instagram. Andrea's at farm and hearth and Alison's at ancestral underscore kitchen. Until next time, we both wish you much fun, exploration and satisfaction in and out of the kitchen. Thank you.